You're listening to the Women in Philanthropy podcast series, a collaboration between Campbell and Company and the Women's Philanthropy Institute. Join us for all four episodes to explore how gender impacts charitable giving. To learn more, visit www.campbellcompany.com. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for a conversation about women in philanthropy with a focus on the outcomes, how philanthropy impacts men and women. My name is Sarah Anderson. I'm the Director of Strategic Priorities with Campbell and & Company, and I'm joined today by Andrea Pachter, the Interim Director of the Women's Philanthropy Institute at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, and Peter Drury, the Vice President for Mission Advancement at Make-A-Wish Alaska and Washington. Have you both say a quick hello, and then we'll dig into our topic. Andrea, go ahead. Well, hello, everybody. It's delightful to be here and, and nice to uh, be talking with both of you. Hi, this is Peter, and I'm yeah honored to join you. So we're here today to talk about how charitable giving affects women and men donors, speaking uh, from kind of psychological perspectives and uh, looking a bit at how giving um, impacts people's happiness or sense of life satisfaction. I think a lot of us get focused um, kind of in the day-to-day of the fundraising work that we do or the ways that we're engaged in, um, in philanthropy and in nonprofit organizations. And sometimes we forget that giving is a joyful endeavor. It's really meant to be about generosity and, and we can really draw some strong connections there to the idea of, of generosity and, and happiness and life satisfaction. So, you know, let's, let's get started by taking a look at what the research shows us about how giving affects all of us, regardless of gender. Andrea, do you want to share a little bit about what some of the research has shown at a high level? Uh, Sarah, you really nailed it in, in the intro because the bottom line is that giving makes us all happy. And it's important sometimes for donors to step back and say, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing? And, and recognize that that act of caring for others or supporting the causes about which we are the most passionate really truly does make us happy. It's also important, I think, for fundraisers and leaders in the nonprofit community to step back sometimes and think about how the donors not only help them fulfill the mission of the organization, but the impact of that giving has on the donors. And I think that that's a piece of the puzzle where we in the nonprofit sector can continue to build a deeper understanding. And that's why I'm glad this study was done. Yeah, I think there can be such a focus for us in thinking about the number of, of dollars that we're raising in a given year or the the number of donors that we're bringing in the door. But, you know, Peter, I think that you had some interesting thoughts about looking differently at that from a perspective of um, donor retention and the ways that that connects to this idea of both donor loyalty, obviously, um, but also how that shows that a, a donor is happy. Can you share a little bit about uh, how you've connected those ideas within Make-A-Wish? Sure. Um, I think in all of my work as a fundraiser, I'm continually convinced that we all get the pressure, whether it's from our boards or from ourselves or from our CEOs or whoever, to always kind of look annually at how much money is coming in the door, because, of course, that's the fundamental reason why we're doing this work. But I think it out of the gate makes us focus on the wrong thing. I actually think that the money raised is like the second most important metric, not the first. I actually think the first most important metric is the rate of retention. And you could maybe do this in other ways, but I focus on the rate of retention because it is the only evidence I have that someone's experience of giving was so good for them, right? That they love that experience so much that they wanted to give again. And for me, the gold standard in philanthropy and fundraising, certainly at Make-A-Wish and elsewhere also previously, has been that we wanna make the experience of giving 
you know, meet the needs and the desires of the donor to help transform the world within whatever the framework, you know, of your organization is. And, and so if we're giving people an experience and the ability to act upon the world positively and change the thing that they believe in doing in partnership with us, and if that experience is so great that they want to give again, that's that's the single most important indicator. In my Peter, this is Andrea. I, I really like what you said because I was thinking about customer service and how so many of us who've been around the block a couple of times uh, bemoan the fact that it's hard to find good customer service these days. Mm-hmm. Nonprofits can distinguish <laughs> themselves. Um, they really can distinguish themselves by providing exceptional customer service. And what what this research shows, and as we as we delve into it a little more deeply in a minute or two, is that we have to reach the donors, male and female donors, where they are. And th- the argument that a donor is a donor is a donor is so 20th century. It's so outdated because uh, we really do have to think about what does it mean to provide exceptional service to our donors so that we can encourage them to continue their giving over time to the organization. So I actually think that the rate of retention is a really interesting indicator from a fundraising perspective um, that ties nicely into this happiness idea. And if I can expand on that just a, a little, I, I like that a lot, Andrea. And I'm thinking that, you know, when you use the language customer service, which I was not thinking about, it's, you know, it sticks me into the kind of for-profit sector. And I think about the businesses that do distinguish themselves by customer service and they want people to be happy. At some point I realize, like after I either, you know, purchase a, you know, an item of clothing or a cup of coffee or something online, whatever it is, if I was if I was conducting my purchase with a company that wanted me to be happy, at some point I've made a transaction, I parted with my money and I was like, oh right, yeah, they kind of just wanted me to be happy and I, I like buying from them, feel good, whatever. And it kind of ends there. And I feel like with a nonprofit organization, we have the chance for people to have the lingering feeling. It's not just like, oh, I made a transaction and it's over. It's actually to get to have the lingering feeling of happiness, right? To get the lingering feeling of like of that glow of like, wow, I actually, I did something today. Like, you know, and I might even remember that a year from now. Like I made a really big gift a year ago and it still means something to me. And that's something that I think the for-profit sector can't offer in customer service. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I bet there are a lot of organizations that are hoping that you remember that a year from now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, you know, pull, your, pull your credit card back out or your checkbook back out. That's and I think right. so much of that, you know, this this idea of donor loyalty, focus on retention, thinking about it from a perspective of customer service, really just speaks to the fundamentals of, of strong, good donor stewardship and really thinking about, you know, what is it that this donor is looking for, whether that's recognition or an understanding of what the impact of their gift was and how that how that changed the life or how that had uh, you know a, a made the world a better place or a stronger connection to the the cause and the mission and, and other people who are involved in supporting that as well or all of the above. I mean, we we know that every donor engages and looks for for a little bit of a different stewardship experience, uh, but I think all of that speaks to this idea of strong customer service, uh, as it were. But we know that some of that really does differ uh, by by gender, and some of the the research shows distinctions that that start to emerge as we look at how men and women are are giving differently and how that impacts sort of their their outcomes and their sense of satisfaction related to that giving. Andrea, can you share a little bit more about what the research showed when we start to to parse this down with a, a closer filter and and look um, at the the gender perspective? I'd be happy to because this really is for me one of the most fun findings to me are just, I love them. They, they're a lot of fun. So I hope that our audience enjoys them too. There are four points I want to make. The first is that single men see the greatest increase in their life satisfaction or happiness when they become donors. 
So for single men, it's when they become donors that the happiness barometer rises. For single and married women, though, the life satisfaction increases most when they increase their giving as a percentage of income. So they're already donors, and it's when they increase that giving. Now let's think about the household. And here we're talking about heterosexual households uh, because that's what this research was able to analyze. For single women and married couples, the more a household gives as a percentage of income, the higher the household's life satisfaction. But for wife-influenced households, the more the household gives as a percentage of income, the higher the household's life satisfaction. So there are these gender differences between men and women. And in, for, in the women's case, the women are driving the philanthropy in the household. When they do that, then the household is happier. Peter, what from that research resonates with you about, based on what you've seen at Make-A-Wish, at other organizations where you've been involved and where you've worked with both male and female gender donors? Sure. Who came to mind for me is a, as a board member, and I'm going to describe them to you without giving you all the details for a second, because you can make, and the audience can make any generalizations or stereotypes you want to, and I want to tell you this, the, what precedes it. So uh, this is someone who serves on our board. He's bald. He's kind of a big guy. Looks like he could play football. You know, kind of a big guy. He's bald. He um, kind of a, seems like kind of a guy's guy in the way that people describe that. That's not really me, and so that, I don't exactly know what that means. But but he's kind of got that football bald. You know, just really happy-go-lucky kind of a guy. He's a wealth manager and wealth advisor in a prominent wealth advisory firm, and has a very successful kind of financial advising practice in that regard. And so he serves on our board. Well, if I rewind in his life about 15 years. He was a single guy who was not involved in nonprofits. He didn't even know what Make-A-Wish was, and he probably wasn't philanthropic. And when he met the woman who he would wind up eventually marrying, she said to him on the first date, she said, well, if we're going to date, you would, have to you would have to be a volunteer for Make-A-Wish. So that's like it lived, and he describes it to this day, like a, like a contract, like he was not qualified to date her unless he was volunteering for Make-A-Wish because she was like this lifelong Make-A-Wish donor and, and I'm sorry, volunteer and deeply involved in her volunteerism at Make-A-Wish, the like all that wish branching that you can read about in the papers and stuff, that's all done by volunteers, not by staff. So it's a pretty incredible volunteer experience. And so she had kind of, her life had been really kind of transformed and still is by Make-A-Wish. So she just said that to him. So he went and did the volunteer training and got himself, right? And then came back and asked her on another date. And there's a kind of a cute story about that about 15 so years ago. Well, fast forward, they moved as a couple from being volunteers to becoming donors, donors to major donors, donors who invite other major donors into the fold in a very classic way. I mean, if you think about kind of the ideal case scenario, folks who they're, they're giving major gifts themselves. And then when you have like your premier event or experience to bring more donors, potential donors in, you know, this is the couple who invites many other people who in the future become table captains in the future and all of those activities. They're really iconically fabulous volunteers and donors. Well, he will tell you to this day, he'll chuckle about the fact that he had really no idea that Make-A-Wish was out there and he had no idea what philanthropy would mean to him and he had no idea what volunteerism, how that could even impact his life. And he, he chuckles and says he really did it because of the condition of dating this woman. 
but he now describes it like, like they're this super happy, fulfilled couple, quite frankly, who's deeply involved in Make-A-Wish, both as volunteers and as donors. And he's a super, he's a great board member. And go back to what I said before about being a wealth manager and financial advisor, he proudly shares a Make-A-Wish story kind of in the lobby of his advisory firm, books and resources and things. And he happily talks to clients about his love for Make-A-Wish. So I don't think that would have happened without her influence on his life. That is a fabulous story on many levels, but it's a perfect example of how the research comes to life through stories like that. I mean, it follows the script of the research uh, perfectly. So thank you for sharing that and for amplifying um, the power of the research with such an incredibly wonderful story. And I'm glad it's all turned out really well for Make-A-Wish. Thanks. Yeah. Sounds like it's been a really, you know, wonderful relationship that's, that's developed and, um, you know, had a lot of nuance to it over time. And, you know, sounds like a great, uh, a great couple to have involved. It, now that you say, if I can say one more word about it, what's interesting about them in my mind now, is so they've been involved, our senior director for major gifts and plan giving just recently made the observation to our staff. They said, this couple has now been involved in Make-A-Wish longer than any one of us on the staff on the development team. And so she's, she was saying, she was challenging the rest of the team to think about, you know, who are those people 15 years from now? Like, who are we supporting now? Who's going to be there in the future? And I thought it was a really provocative idea to say, look, development team, like we're all on the staff. But this, this story they tell about kind of falling in love and dating and volunteering for Make-A-Wish precedes a single one of us. So when I think about like the, the importance of our work over time and engaging people for kind of a lifelong journey with an organization, uh, you know, I think it's a great reminder. Yeah, absolutely. There's another piece to the story that I think is kind of interesting. And we may have alluded to it earlier, but it's this idea of how do we transmit the joy that this couple has received in their engagement, their deep, deep engagement with Make-A-Wish, how do we transmit that uh, to our broader universal donor pool, if you will? Because I know in my own newspaper, um, I, see where, I see word about Make-A-Wish in terms of donating your car to support them. Sometimes there will be a story in the paper about the recipient of the Make-A-Wish uh, grant, wh whatever the child wanted to do, um, you know, in, in that wish kind of a thing. But I don't very often see stories that talk about the joy that the giving um, has given to the donor. And I think it's a wake-up call for us in the nonprofit sector to be mindful that programmatically we're really good at telling the story. We need to step back and include the donor's voice in that story too. And this particular study we, which one of our advisory council members called the Philanthropy Happiness Report, is a reminder for us to add that to our to-do list because this joy is infectious. And when others hear the story, they may well be motivated to engage from the beginning or in the middle or to grow their giving. Yeah, so what are the ways that we can, then that nonprofit organizations can take that idea of this infectious joy and and bring it out to a to a broader audience, you know whether that's featuring those donor stories in you know the annual report or on the website or having donors as kind of advocates and ambassadors at their events um, who are talking about you know just bringing donors back into that that question and reminding them of you know why did you get involved and why do you stay involved as a donor I think is always a really powerful way to recenter them on that intrinsic motivation that led them to want to give in the first place. And, and so often that is motivated by that sense of satisfaction or happiness that comes from making that gift. So, you know, I always love when I'm talking with donors to, to really lean into that question 
just to really center the conversation around that idea of motivation that, that is so linked to happiness. And Peter, I don't know if that's, you know, when we talked about retention, you said, you know, that you want to make your donors as, as happy as possible so that they're, um, they become loyal donors and want to continue to give because it brings them joy. What are some of the ways that you enact that at Make-A-Wish? The points are really powerful, and I, and I um, gosh, it's, it's an honor to be in this conversation, and I'm thinking that people listening to this podcast are probably, like, brimming with their own, you know, ideas or examples or stories. I wish I could have them on the line to share those right now. They're probably more important <laughs> than mine, but the, the, but but in the absence of that, I, you know, I have come to a kind of a succession in my mind of four words that I think of when we, when we talk about this topic of a culture of philanthropy and how you grow that in an organization. There's four words that in a successive order mean something to me pretty profound, and I share with my team, and and uh, and we try to work together on this. And the, fir the first of those words is gratitude. I mean, if we don't have a culture of gratitude in all kinds of ways, right, then we're, we really can't even get out of the gate. And so, and I won't go on about that right now, but just the depth of gratitude as a true and seer, you know, an authentic kind of a voice and experience. But from gratitude goes to hospitality. Hospitality being the welcome, the warmth of our welcome into the organization, the mission, the experience of being a part of Make-A-Wish, like that, 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 hot, that spirit of hospitality. And then after hospitality is integrity. And integrity to me is that we actually deliver on what we say we're going to deliver on. We actually, you know, that what we believe and what we say and that we do, that those things are in alignment. And then, and this is, and this is where this ties together. So I feel like if donors feel the gratitude and they feel welcomed in and they see evidence that we actually have the impact you know that we want to have and that we're honest and transparent and all those things then the fourth thing at the height of that ladder if you will is community and that is people meeting other people who also have experienced the gratitude and the welcome and the integrity and then building new friendships new communities new connections maybe they fall in love heck you know whatever but so so my sense of my work as a as a fundraising leader is to help with our team to think about how do we move people through those steps and i think it's totally congruent with these findings on happiness and i absolutely relative to you know, relative to gender if you know if i had to bet on this who i'd work with you know, to help me make this happen as donors and volunteers, you better believe I'd start with women and I'd include some men along the way because there, there are some <laughs> men who care about this. But I would say that in general, many women would be motivated, right, by connection and volunteering and giving and generosity and that, that you know, that, that sense of community that hovers around a mission. And I think there are some men and I, and I, and I, in the ideal, I'd like to develop you know, kind of small localized connections and communities of people who love the mission, finally share the mission in common. And they've all come through that pathway of gratitude, hospitality, and integrity. And now they find each other in community. And then that can help sustain loyalty and happiness. Yeah, that really resonates with what I've seen with a lot of organizations that, that I've worked with, um, you know, where, where donors are kind of, they're taking that journey um, kind of through those, really through those sort of concepts that, that you just highlighted here. And Getting to that place of community, I think, is where where the magic really happens, where sort of something clicks and the donor really starts to feel like they are, they're not just a supporter, but they're a part of the cause. And what I've really found in many of the organizations that I've worked with happen to focus on women's and girls' causes. And so they, you know, they heavily draw from a, a female donor base and they've really created these spaces where donors can come together and talk about, you know, why why they care and what they're kind of seeing in the world right now and what what the passion is that brings them to this cause. And the the sense of community that they get from that of just the ability to be connected to to one another as donors and to see sort of kinship in in those spaces, I think has been especially motivating for the women who are involved. 
assessment has really helped to to deepen their engagement, not only to the to the cause writ large, but to the organization itself and the, the increased giving that often comes along with that. So I think that kind of idea of the journey toward that sense of community is a really powerful thing for organizations in mind. There's one point from the research that I'd love to dig in on a little bit deeper as we think about how to connect these ideas to kind of tangible takeaways for, for nonprofit organizations. And that's the point about single men that you raised, Andrea, saying that single men see the greatest increase in life satisfaction when they become donors. And I think that that can be such a, a sticky point for organizations to think about. How do, we, how do we bring new donors into our organization? And when we think about that from a gender lens and thinking about single men in particular, I'd love to hear, you know, what you've what you've seen in the field that has been successful in that in that realm or how organizations have tackled that problem. Because I'm sure it's not sitting down with a with a man and saying, I promise if you give, you're gonna be a happier person. But how do they how do they bridge that gap and make that connection? Andrew, maybe you could share a few thoughts about that. Uh, thanks, Sarah. So one of the outcomes of this growing body of research we have about gender and philanthropy is we really are learning a lot more about how men and women differ in their motivations for giving and in the way they practice it. We're also beginning to understand a little bit about some of the gaps that are appearing. And because there are so many communities in this country that are more tech-oriented today, it's not just the Silicon Valley, but it, it seems to be a growing economic incentive for a lot of communities. There are a lot of single men in communities all around the country, and they're not necessarily engaged in that community. So the, our local United Way began to realize this, and they particularly wanted to figure out some strategies to engage them. And perhaps the typical volunteering activities might not necessarily appeal to them. So one way they did it is they created a focus group of a few of the you know, 25 to 35 age range men that they knew working in a, a particular tech business here in town. And, and they sort of asked them how they wanted to come together. And interestingly enough, this idea of coming together and having a safe space to talk generally or to network was appealing. And then what, what the United Way can do is it can begin to build its message around that and figure out some particular strategies for them to A, share their skills with the nonprofits the United Way serves, or to um, bring them to, to talk about, you know, to, to join panels or to come to other sessions. And so it's, it's a slow, strategic, step-by-step -step effort to really engage that group because they have seen the gap. That's one example that I know of. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example and something that I know a lot of organizations are, are thinking about is, you know, how to how to engage that, that tech donor in ways that, that feel meaningful and can create a, a deeper sense of, of connection there. Peter, I think the example you gave earlier of, uh, of the couple, you know, kind of started from this idea of, you know, this, this guy kind of had this ultimatum he needed, he needed to give in order to <laughs> be able to get into this relationship. But what else have you seen in, in thinking about kind of that first step of going from not being a donor to, to actually engaging with the cause? Sure. Well, it's kind of fun you asked me to do this because when I tell you in a second what we're, what we're about to do, it was planned before I knew about this research and it was certainly, and you didn't know about it when you asked me to be on this podcast. So we're rolling out a new event this spring. We wanted to focus, I often think about donor experience until the year, kind of winter, spring, summer, and fall, kind of in the winter time things that are, you know, more kind of cozy or insular and shorter days. And, and what does a donor want at that time of year relative to our mission? And in the spring, when days are lengthening, you know, and the, the days, days are longer and the 
flowers are coming up and what they, you know, we kind of went through an exercise seeing about the seasons of the year and donor experience. And it led us to wanting to have um, an event that is not like your classic kind of, it's not a gala and it's not a luncheon and it's not, there's no pledge cards or any of that. We're literally calling it happiness hour. We're picking up on the idea of happiness, of a happy hour timing. We're calling it happiness hour. And it's going to be, it's a, like a May season kind of nice long in the thick of you know longer days and it's happy hour timing and it will definitely be uh, marketed and folks invited to that as kind of accessible to we're looking at the language from kind of a millennial and a gen x kind of perspective but also from the angle of the people who just don't want to be in a tuxedo or a formal dress you know who don't like that stuff they instead want to come just be happy and, we, and the idea of happiness as this invitation to a happy hour we feel like that's kind of brand congruent and the ease of that but at the event, in terms of the program, we're going to keep it fairly lighthearted, but we will go deep on, you know, a profound story kind of to what Andrew was saying earlier about what she kind of hears on the radio. The idea of from a volunteer, how her life is so much better because of what she does as a Make-A-Wish volunteer and from a donor, how their life is so much better, you know, what, what makes them happy. So the theme is all around happiness, interestingly enough, but it's a happy hour kind of a context. So we're running with that and rolling that out this spring and we're doing it. We'll be doing it in Seattle, but with the idea that we want to roll this out um, in smaller ways throughout the territory. So we're the Alaska-Washington chapter, and I'd love to do this in a dozen towns across the chapter so that people in local small towns, they don't have to come to Seattle for this, but instead that they have a local experience of a happiness hour gathering with their peers, and they can celebrate the impact and make a wish on their life as a volunteer or as a donor. That's such a cool idea, and I, I love the the happy coincidence, no pun intended, of you know, that being something that you're thinking about, even as we're um, talking about this connection between giving mm -hmm. and, and happiness and life satisfaction. Well, we're coming up on our time, and I wanted to see if any, if either of you have kind of final thoughts that you'd like to share about, you know, what organizations can take away from this as they think about happiness from the, the perspective of their donors and what it means to their connection to the organization. What, what one takeaway would you, one organization to, to leave with today? So this is Andrea, and I want to um, come in on this one because it follows on what Peter was saying so perfectly. The reason that this research matters for fundraisers is because it helps you redefine who you are as a fundraiser. You're not a fundraiser anymore. You're a happiness broker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so as a happiness broker, I think it's perfectly appropriate to organize a happiness hour during happy hour where you talk about the happiness that being a volunteer and a donor give for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. So, it, you know, when we think about ourselves with that positive outlook, it really changes our perspective and all of the other things melt away because really at the end of the day, what fundraisers are doing is connecting the donors to the causes about which they're passionate and that should make us all happy. Totally agree, completely agree. And I can kind of picture in my mind that board meeting and you've all been in them. And you've all been in many of them where you raise the topic of fundraising and the board, you can kind of see people's body language kind of, they kind of push back from the table or their eyes kind of <laughs> like they, they look away from you mm -hmm. and they're like, well, I don't want to be involved in that, you know? And I feel like that's so symbolic of a misunderstanding of what our core work is. And I think our core work is to invite people in, right, to changing the world, quite literally, in whatever way it is that they want to do that. And that means we're inviting them into connect with the thing that they believe you know, is most important around them. And guess what? That's an invitation, like you say, to happiness. That's brokering happiness. I think it's a powerful way to put it, Andrea, and uh, couldn't agree more. I think this core work is about inviting people into some, to act on what they believe and to experience how that makes them. I think that's a, a lovely thought to um, to conclude on today. We've been 
talking today with Peter Drury from Make-A-Wish and Andrea Pachter from the Women's Philanthropy Institute about the, the joy of giving and the impact that, that giving has on men and women donors in terms of their life satisfaction. I want to thank you both for being part of the conversation today. It was really enlightening for me, and I just really enjoyed digging in on this topic. I mean, who doesn't love to, to talk about happiness, right? So, uh, a lot of fun to, to be with you both today. Thank you again. That's it for today's podcast. On behalf of Campbell and & Company and the Women's Philanthropy Institute, thanks for tuning in. For more fundraising insights, follow Campbell & Company and the Women's Philanthropy Institute on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.